Hi, everyone. This is Grace's on the case. I'm Grace Lynn Keller, and today I'm not just covering one case. I'm covering 28, all attributed to the same man, an elusive rage-filled serial killer who operated in New Orleans, Louisiana throughout the 1990s. This is the story of the Storyville Slayer. On August 13, 1997, radio personality Howard Stern was live on air for his radio broadcast, The Howard Stern Show. In this show, there was a segment where listeners could call in and talk to Stern. This segment produced many strange conversations over the years, including some crazy hoaxes and conspiracy theories. So on this day, when a man named Clay called in and casually confessed that he had been killing sex workers, staff, Stern, and his co-host assumed that it was just another hoaxer trying to get a rise out of them and the public. But as the segment went on, it became pretty clear that this man was dead serious about the murders he was discussing. So I have a clip from the August 13th episode here, and I'm going to play it for you now so you can hear this conversation for yourself. Here it is. All right, I got a guy on the phone who claims he's been killing prostitutes and he's wondering why he's doing it. Oh, God. So maybe uh, he, he thinks I have an answer. Is this Ed? Ed? No, this isn't Ed. No. Oh. You haven't killed any prostitutes? No, I never said my name was Ed. Oh. oh. Sorry. That's yeah, okay. What's your, what name do you use? You can call me Clay. Clay? Clay? Yes, Clay. Okay, Clay, so what happened? How many prostitutes have you killed? Twelve. And you're wondering Where? why you do it? I have a pretty good idea. Why? Did your mom beat you? Did your mom spank you? Did, uh... Was your mom a prostitute? No. Actually, nothing like that. What is it, then? I think I just do it for the sense of the power. All right. Do you have sex with them first? Yes, and... And then what, you strangle them? Once. How else did you kill him? Well, a few times, actually, most times with a hammer. Hmm. And where do you do this primarily? Uh, I've done it twice in a parking garage, and then the rest of the time's on the side of the road. And uh, you're from the New Orleans area? Yes. Hmm. And how, I mean, what do you, you beat them to death with a hammer? Man. That usually only takes once in it. Dude, you got to have a lot of anger in you. Yes. Man. Well, why do you need to feel so powerful? He's got some issue with women, but, like, some shrink's got to look into it. It's not even worried. I mean, you might as well just kill yourself if you've killed 15 people. And that means you're heartless. Do you used to kill small animals? No. I've killed a rat. Yeah. See, a lot of guys start out killing kittens for some reason. Yeah, they kill something before they start with humans. If my kid, like, killed a, a kitten or something cute... I'd probably just, you know, figure, well, this is it. They're going to be serial killers. Kill them. <laughs> Dude, you're a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you get away with it, I guess, because they're hookers, and so far nobody's... Howard? What? Is this Howard? Yeah. Hello? Hello? I didn't know this was Howard. Yeah, it's yeah, Howard. of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've never killed a kitten. So how old were you when you killed your first woman? Sixteen. And uh, you must be a powerful kind of guy, big guy. Uh, I wasn't then. Right. And uh, when you killed your first one, did you go in there knowing you were going to kill her, or it just sort of happened? I I knew I I had 
I really had it planned out. Hmm. You know, I wanted to do the whole sending clues. Right. Oh, yeah, are you in... baffle people, but it turned out no one noticed for a long time. Right. Like, like you killed her on the side of the road? Uh, her, that was the parking garage. Okay. And then what'd you do with the body? You dumped that somewhere? Yeah, actually. I think uh, she's probably one of the ones that they found. Yeah. But let me ask you, so you were sending clues that you were going to do this? No, I was... Uh, he was going to like doing that. He was going to leave like a note for the newspapers, and you know. Uh, but you decided not to. He didn't want to be famous or draw attention to himself. But my problem no, is, that's, could... that's what I wanted to do. But oh, but you did. But no one noticed the clues. I no, I never sent the clues. I never no. left anything. You know, I wanted to have my own little signature. Right. I wanted the thumb paint. Oh, it's with uh, thumbs. Oh, really? What do you want to do? Thumb paint with their thumbs. Thumb paint what though? I don't know. Oh, anything. It, it was in a comic book a couple of years ago. It just seemed like a good idea. Like you take the girl you killed, you, you dip her thumbs in paint, and then you do like a thumb painting? Yes. On a piece of paper? Yeah. Hmm. Now, when you after you kill somebody, do you play with the body? Actually, the closest I've ever done to that is I always make sure I pay them, and I make sure they keep their money. Oh, really? When they're still alive, but uh, with one of them, I did put the money in a compromising place. I see. So do you, you ever get, do you think the reason you're so angry is because you were abused or something? No, I wasn't abused, Howard. Hmm. Where's your family? You got a wife? I mean, you got a mom, a dad, a wife, children, you got any of that? I've got a couple of kids, but um, I... No wife. not married to the mother. Hmm. You're a white guy? Uh, yeah, Howard, that's pretty funny because the only suspect they had when they started finding the bodies was a black police officer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out one of them uh, was associated with them. Oh, really? Uh, are you on drugs? Uh, I've done acid a few times. Mm. So, so you just want to kill? Uh, I'm just bored. Right. But does the killing sexually satisfy you in some way? I can't believe Ed McMahon's not uh, laughing. I've, 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 I've eaten off thinking about it later. Yeah. What are you saying? That's, that's he's, about it. He's pleasured himself thinking about it later. Oh, he has. Okay. Now, how far apart are these murders? Like, do you murder and then, like, you feel satisfied for a while? Um, I don't even understand why I do it, Howard. I don't know if, if I ever get any satisfaction. Hmm. But how, um, how often... The together anywhere was uh, the same night. Really? You killed two people in the same night? Yeah, but I went to Mississippi for the second one. Hmm. Hmm. So there's no pattern to how many weeks or days between murders? No. Are these mostly white chicks or black chicks? Uh, a fair, fair number of them have been black. The uh, transvestite was black. Is he doing some racial motivation here? No, Howard. And it's just whoever comes up to you. You don't pick a certain type. I don't even approach them. I wait for them to approach me, Robin. So and do you that's ever like them asking for it? Do you ever like look into their eyes and go, you know, gee, these these people were just children at one point, and maybe they just had a tough life? And... I've let a couple go. You have. Like what happened? You're in the middle of killing them, and then they, and then they. What do they say? Why would you let one go uh, and kill the other? There was this one. Go ahead. Uh, I think she was probably really new to it. Yeah. I, there was just something about her. Maybe she reminded me of my fiance, but right. You somehow more, relate more, more of an innocent quality. I just you somehow felt bad for her. Yeah. Hmm. And you have a fiance, so you're planning to get I, married? I, no. He had one. Oh, he had one. No, no. Um, if I wouldn't be a suspect, uh, believe me, she'd. Well, let me ask you, why'd you let? Like, did you start to kill her, and then, like you said, ah, forget it. 
Or you just never no, even... Not, not even. You just, not had even. Sex, you just had sex with her and then you let her go? Uh, I didn't even have sex with her, Howard. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's weird. Now, that's weird. I mean, he just really felt sorry for that. I don't know what, what she was doing, doing what she was doing, but... When was the last time you killed? It, it's been a few months. Right. Actually, it's... It's been going on a year. Hmm. You're like the Boston Strangler, man. Maybe I should option your story. So, what do you think you're going to do? Do you think you're going to kill yourself? Do you think that uh, you think Are you going to kill again? Can you uh, stop no, this? I killed myself. I'd miss the next Batman movie. Right. You don't want to do that. No. That's a fan. Actually, I'd actually kill myself yeah, to miss. Why them, would but... you want to stay for that? No, but in all seriousness, I mean, do you think that uh, you can control this? Do you think I you think can I, stop? I think I have been. Oh, you have been for the last hey, couple of months. A year he hasn't killed. Oh, a year? Yeah. Almost. So why do you think he stopped killing all of a sudden? I really don't know, Howard. I just... Part of it had to do with my car broke down. Oh, no transportation. Oh, yeah. mm. Seriously? That's the reason? Well, that was the reason for a month. But after that, I guess it was all self-control. Wow. Oh. I'm the only guy you can... Am I the only guy you ever told about this? Yeah. Wow. I guess that's sort of an honor. I've told a couple of women, Howard, but... Uh, They're dead. Yeah. Do you tell them first and then you kill them? Uh, yeah. What yeah. do you say to them? Let me... Hit... Fun. All right, let's see. Every now and then you can play the running game if you're out in the middle of nowhere, and we got a lot in the middle of nowhere down here. Right. All right. Well, there you go. Well, now we've shed no light on this. We don't know how a serial killer is made, and yeah. we don't know how to catch him. Yeah, well, you know what? All the experts don't know either, so... Uh oh, Jackie's back there bumming out. First, I wasn't buying it, but now I think I'd buy it. Nah, I'd buy it. Yeah, I bought that's that guy. Sort of offhand attitude that you have to have to be a serial killer. Nah, I buy it. No, I think he was the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you the truth. Okay, Tom, you're on the air. So I trimmed this down a little because the full clip is actually about 15 minutes long. But if you want to listen to the full call, it's linked in the show notes. As you can tell from this conversation, Clay alleges that he's killed 12 sex workers and goes into pretty great detail about how he's done this and the reasons he believes he has become a serial killer, as well as divulging a lot of info about his personal life. It's pretty clear that Stern and his co-host believe at first that this is a prank or a hoax, but as the call continues and Clay gets increasingly serious and detailed in his discussion, the radio hosts begin taking it more seriously. Once the tone shifts, Stern actually plays into this a little bit, and he begins asking more specific questions about MO, motive, location, etc. And honestly, good on Stern for this. I'm guessing he realized that this guy might actually be serious and was trying to get as much information out of him as possible while he was willing to talk. But when Clay ends the conversation, Stern just continues the show rolling into the next caller. So the next day, Stern was back on air for his show and told the audience that the FBI had paid his studio a visit requesting a tape of the call for analysis. They were in the middle of a manhunt for a predator that had been lurking in the New Orleans streets for years, preying on sex workers and drug addicts. Stern and staff turned the tape over and learned that the authorities were convinced the call had come from that very predator, which the media had dubbed the Storyville Slayer. The tale of the Storyville Slayer began in July 1991, when a young Black woman had gone to police about a man who had attempted to kill her. 
She was a sex worker and had entered the car of this man in Algiers, which is a historic neighborhood of New Orleans, Louisiana. She said the man had strangled her into unconsciousness and left her in the streets. He hadn't fully killed her, though, thankfully, and she woke up some time later. She described this man as a middle-aged black male who was well-dressed, muscular, and drove a dark-colored vehicle. Then, on August 4th of the same year, less than a month after the first woman's report, the body of 17-year-old Danielle Britton was found not far from where the original woman had said she was picked up the day she was strangled. Her body was found under a pile of garbage, and an autopsy confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. Britton had dropped out of school shortly before her death, but nothing indicated that she had begun engaging in sex work or drug use at the time of her death. She was last seen at a bar in the city with an unknown man. On September 3rd, 21-year-old Tyra Tassin was found strangled. She was a mother of three and had previous conviction for drug possession. On the 21st, 28-year-old Charlene Price was found dead in a park only a mile from where Britain was discovered. She was found nude and face down, strangled to death. Price was a drug user, according to her family, but had no history of sex work. Next, 37-year-old Regina Oka was found dead on November 21st, and an autopsy confirmed that she was strangled and had a large amount of cocaine in her system. She also had multiple arrests for sex work over her lifetime. Then, on December 4th, police discovered the skeletal remains of a Black woman who was estimated to be in her early 20s with the defining feature of protruding teeth. She was dubbed as Jane Doe number 1 and was found very close to where Britton's body had been found and was presumably strangled as well. On January 4th, 1992, one month after Jane Doe number 1 was found, Lydia Madison was discovered in a ditch under an overpass. The cause of death was determined to be strangulation. 29-year-old Madison had multiple arrests for sex work and drug possession over the course of her life. So at this point, New Orleans authorities have six women dead in five months, plus a report of an attempted murder, and all but one of the victims were either involved in sex work, drug use, or both. And I mention this history with the victims not because sex work or drug use leads to murder, and I'm not at all victim-blaming here. Nobody deserves to be murdered. I want to make that clear. But because this is the pattern that begins to emerge for police, they are now pretty certain they've got a serial killer on their hands who's picking up sex workers and drug users off of the city streets and strangling them. And worse, they've got zero suspects or concrete leads beyond that vague description the first woman gave them. This all amounts to very bad news, and unfortunately, the terror was far from over. So some time passes after the discovery of Madison, and police are kind of left wondering what's going to happen next as they're trying to follow up on every lead that they can get. But this false sense of security was shattered when 25-year-old woman was found strangled to death in an area of wetlands. This woman was transgender and identified by police as George Williams. Now, I tried incredibly hard to find out if she went by a name other than George, but I did not have any luck, so I'm just going to continue to use her last name, Williams, and she, her pronouns. She was an exotic dancer at a nightclub in the French Quarter and had prior convictions for drug possession and a past conviction for robbery which fit in with the victimology that has emerged so far. 
Then on July 25th, the body of Noah Filson was found nude in a canal near I-55. Noah was also an exotic dancer and went by the stage name Brenda Bewitch when dancing. And it's unclear what their gender identity or preferred pronouns were. So I'm just going to be using their last name Filson with they them pronouns. On September 29th, Rediger Martin, a 29-year-old mother of three, was found dead in another canal off of a highway. She had multiple previous arrests for sex work like many of the other victims. So then in October of 1992, police finally released a sketch of a possible suspect based on that description from the very first woman and so far the only known survivor of this killer. Now, this seems like very slow action from police. I mean, they've got 10 victims now in a little bit over a year, but I do want to point out that not all of these victims I've mentioned so far were connected to the Storyville Slayer at the time. In 1992, at this point, only six were actually attributed to this same killer at the time. The other four were thought to be unrelated separate one-off incidents, and it wasn't until much later that the involvement of the FBI uncovered the true number of murders connected to the Storyville Slayer. Again, though, six is still a very large number, and we also can't discount the typically slow and less urgent response of law enforcement to any case that deals with sex workers, drug users, and those living higher-risk lifestyles. Additionally, a large majority of the Storyville Slayer victims were Black as well. Now, I could go on a whole rant about the bias we see in law enforcement when it comes to victims of high-risk lifestyles and victims of color, but I'm going to spare you my soapbox. My point being, what we see in this case isn't any different to many others involving victims of these groups. Authorities moved a lot slower than they would have if it had been six middle or upper-class white people found murdered. But anyway, after the release of this sketch, the killer took a five-month hiatus, and bodies stopped showing up across New Orleans. On February 20th, 1993, this cooling-off period was broken when 30-year-old Cheryl Lewis's skeletal remains were discovered in the waters of a canal. The cause of death was ruled as strangulation. The mother of four was a sex worker with multiple prior arrests and had been last seen on February 2nd being dragged into a car by an unidentified white male. Now, this was an interesting development in the case because up until this point, the description police were going on was of a black man, and that's who they had created the sketch of. But now we have a white male who has been last seen with a victim attributed to the Storyville Slayer. So let's put a pin in that because we're going to come back to it. So the next day, February 21st, Dolores Mack's body was found in a canal near where Lewis was discovered. She was 42 years old, and unlike most of the victims in this case, she did not have any known history of sex work or drug use. Now, it was here that the steady stream of bodies stopped turning up in New Orleans once again. At the time, the police thought the killer may have entered another cooling-off period, been jailed on some other offense, or worse, had actually moved the operation to another location. But it wasn't until 1994 that they discovered this killer had been operating the entire time, just making it harder to find the bodies. All of these next victims are believed to have been killed sometime in 1993. So on February 5th, 1994, skeletal remains were found and later determined to belong to a woman between the ages of 25 and 35. She had been strangled. She remains unidentified and is referred to as Jane Doe number two. 
Five days later, more skeletal remains were found, this time belonging to a girl estimated to be around 15 to 17 years old. Cause of death was determined to be strangulation here as well, and due to extreme composition, she too remains unidentified and is Jane Doe number three. On February 13, 1994, 25-year-old Stephanie Murray was discovered in a small pond near a spillway. Her cause of death is unknown. Two days later, February 15th, the skeletal remains of another young girl were found who was also never identified. This girl became Jane Doe number four, and very few details about her death are available. On April 2nd, two sets of skeletal remains were found in canals, later determined to belong to a young woman and a young man. Due to more extreme decomposition, neither were identified and became Jane Doe number five and John Doe number one. Then, July 3rd, 1994, the body of 32-year-old Michelle Foster, who had gone missing in New Orleans just days prior, was found. She was the first victim discovered in 1994 that police are sure was actually killed in the same year. Obviously, like I mentioned, there's some question about which victims discovered prior to this were killed in 1993 or in 1994. So that's just a note there. And then on October 19th, the skeletal remains of a woman were found in a wooded area near a highway. She was later identified as 28-year-old Stephanie Brown, who had no prior criminal record, which again goes against the pattern for most of the victims in this case. On January 22nd, 1995, 29-year-old mother of three, Wanda Ford, was found in a swamp near the I-95. She had an arrest record for theft and was a known drug addict. The next day, January 23rd, the body of 39-year-old Sandra Werner was found where a previous victim had been found. On January 25th, the remains of 25-year-old Henry Calvin, who had gone missing months earlier from New Orleans, was found. No further details are available about Calvin's death. Now, with all of these victims that I just mentioned, some may have been killed in 1995, but some of them also may have been killed in 1994, and Henry Calvin was definitely killed in 1994. So there's a little bit of a question there as to exactly when their time of death was. So continuing on, I know this is getting pretty gruesome, but on March 24th, police found more skeletal remains under an overpass. While they were determined to be female, authorities were unable to identify this victim, and she is listed at Jane Doe number 6. Her estimated age was between 25 and 35. On April 30th, the bodies of two women were found in a swampy area near the I-55. The victims were later identified as Karen Ivester, 30, and Sharon Robinson, 28. Autopsies determined that Iverster had been strangled while Robinson had been beaten and strangled, but the presence of water in her lungs indicated that her true cause of death had been drowning, tragically meaning that she was still alive when her killer had left the scene and she ended up drowning to death in the swampy water that she was left in. The discovery of these two presented some new information, though. Ivester and Robinson were reportedly friends and had met up at a casino the night that they were last seen alive. The last time they were spotted was outside this casino, and there was a third person with them, Victor Gant, Robinson's ex-boyfriend and a New Orleans police officer. More on him in a bit, so let's put a pin in that. Finally, on May 6, 1995, 39-year-old Sandra Williams, who had been strangled, was found on a boulevard in New Orleans. According to the investigation, the murder ceased following her death. Eleven months after the final body was found, police discovered additional skeletal remains on April 8, 1996. 
These were later identified as 39-year-old Lola Porter, who had gone missing from New Orleans in 1992 and is believed to have been killed shortly after that. But she just went undiscovered until 96. Authorities interviewed her friends and acquaintances after they found her, who stated that she had been living with a white male who disappeared shortly after Porter went missing. Okay, so let's just pause here and go back over this timeline quickly because we've got 27 murder victims and one assault, all connected at this point to one predator. So things begin in New Orleans in July 1991 with the original report of an attempted murder, and that year goes on with five more murder victims found in the city and surrounding areas. In 1992, we see four more victims discovered, but five total, including Lola Porter, who, remember, wasn't discovered until four years after her presumed death. The killer then had a cooling off period at the end of this year, and that was after the sketch was released. In 1993, we have two more victims found, but the actual number of victims in this year is believed to have been around six or seven, because remember, a lot of the 93 victims were not found until 1994. Of the victims discovered in 1994, it's believed that three to four of them were actually killed in that year. And then finally, seven victims were killed in 95 up through May, and then the murder suddenly stopped after May 6th. Okay, so there we have it, 28 victims over four years, only one surviving, and then an inexplicable end to the terror in 1995. Now, in the same month that the killing stopped, the New Orleans Police Department assembled a task force which included authorities from surrounding jurisdictions and the FBI. They knew they had an active serial killer on their hands, and they hadn't had a single major break in the case in four years. So this task force quickly zeroed in on one man, Victor Gant. Now remember, Gant was a New Orleans police officer and ex-boyfriend of victim Sharon Robinson, and Robinson had actually accused Gant of being physically abusive toward her during their relationship. In early May, Gant was interviewed by the FBI and denied any involvement in Robinson's murder or that of her friend Karen Ivester, who, remember, was also found with Robinson. He actually denied even dating Robinson, which friends and family members of hers disputed. I don't understand this outright lie since there are so many people who attributed the fact that he dated her, but whatever, I guess. Then the following month, police obtained a warrant for Gant's head hair, pubic hair, and saliva and collected all of those things from him. During a press conference that August, authorities announced that a serial killer was, quote, stalking the city, unquote, and was believed to be responsible for at least 24 murders at that point. They officially named Gant a suspect in Iverster and Robinson's murders, but not a suspect in any other murders. I want to make that clear. It's just Iverster and Robinson's murders at this time. They also note that he matched the description they had from the first victim, a muscular black male, and he looks a whole heck of a lot like the sketch. You can find the sketch online and I'll link it in the show notes. Like, it's pretty crazy. So then in December, the DNA results from the hair and saliva collected from Gant comes back as inconclusive against DNA that has been found at the scene of Robinson and Ivester's murders. Also in 1995, Gant was part of a disciplinary hearing to determine his punishment for domestic violence charges that had been brought against him by Robinson in December of 1994, before she died. 
She said that he had punched her in the face and broke her nose. While Gant denied this and said that she broke her nose because he shoved her during an argument and she fell down onto a chair. Robinson's children, however, stated that they saw Gant beating their mother, and the emergency room doctor she saw after this agreed that her injuries were due to a beating, not just from falling on a chair. Robinson was supposed to testify at this hearing that was happening, but she was found dead very shortly before the hearing began. In August 1996, Gant was terminated from his job with the New Orleans Police Department due to four procedure violations, but it's unclear what those were and I couldn't find that expanded upon anywhere. In 1997, Gant was charged with battery after an accusation from another ex-girlfriend, which he was arrested for. Those charges were dropped after she declined to testify at the trial. Gant actually briefly regained his status with the New Orleans PD in 1999 when he got a judge to rule that the punishment had been too harsh when he was originally terminated. This only lasted two months, though, because they let him go again due to the battery allegations and came out and basically said he never should have been reinstated in the first place because he had not one but two formal allegations made against him over a span of years for domestic violence. And this is where Gant kind of falls off the map in this case. He was officially ruled out sometime after this for Robinson and Ivester's killings, and with nothing tying him to any of the other victims, police decided it was time to shift their focus. In November 1997, a new suspect emerged after some more investigating. This man was Russell Elwood, an Ohio native who moved to New Orleans upon his high school graduation. Elwood was a drug addict who lived in poverty and pretty much squalor his entire adult life up until this point, never having a permanent residence and using cab driving and photography to make money. He was arrested several times after moving to New Orleans because of his addiction, and those who knew him described him as an outsider, even within the homeless community that he spent most of his time with. Elwood actually first came under suspicion in connection to the Stoyville Slayer all the way back in 1994 when he was found one night masturbating in his car. The location of this stop was on the road near where the bodies of victims Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack were discovered in early 1993. Police required him to exit the vehicle and show his license, and he explained that his reason for being there was to change his car's oil and fix his brake pads. After willingly allowing the search of his vehicle, police found none of the items that would be necessary to make those fixes, not even a flashlight, which would have been required for any type of repair to be made that night. And so he was taken in for questioning after this and recorded as a suspect in both Mac and Lewis's murders. But at this time, he was never formally charged. So that was 1994. Now we're going to fast forward back to 97 and police form a task force in July to seek out and re-question Elwood in the case. They found him living in Florida with his elderly father, and he was taken in for more questioning. Over a period of three days, Elwood made multiple increasingly confusing statements on tape, none of which made him look very good in the eyes of police. He began admitting that he frequently spent time with sex workers, claiming he knew more than 100 of them, and that he preferred black women. He also said that he constantly took drugs for years, including LSD, heroin, and crack cocaine. 
Additionally, he discussed a dream he had in which he was questioned by authorities for a series of murders, and finally admitted to frequenting many of the locations that victims had been picked up and dumped across New Orleans. Through all of this, though, Elwood maintained his innocence. In August of 1997, just days after that three-day interrogation concluded, Elwood was arrested near his home for attempting to purchase cocaine from an undercover police officer. This led to a conviction and an 85-day county jail sentence, in which time Elwood's cellmates claimed that he confessed to multiple of the Storyville Slayer killings. One of them actually contacted the sheriff's office of their own volition to tell authorities how Elwood described picking up sex workers, giving them large amounts of illegal drugs, strangling them, and then dumping their bodies. A separate inmate who knew Elwood during his prison stint also contacted authorities and told them that Elwood claimed he was wanted for over 60 murders in Louisiana and had described the events of one of them in detail. So after his sentence was up, Elwood returned to his native Ohio to work for his brother, but authorities were hot on his trail. With the inmate's testimony, the task force from Louisiana tracked Elwood down and questioned him for a third time. Initially, he denied making any comments about the killings, but after hearing a taped statement by one of the inmates who had come forward, Elwood finally admitted that he had boasted about the murders. After this admission, Elwood claimed that he was suffering from mental illness and demanded that he be allowed to return to New Orleans to talk with his lawyer and receive treatment. Police denied him this request, which prompted him to confess to the murders of Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack. But this initial confession had not been taped, and when the tape recorder was brought out, Elwood then refused to confess for the audio recording and then began denying that he had confessed altogether. So with nothing on the record, police had no choice but to let him go again, despite him being suspect number one in their minds. And I'm a little confused by this because, like, if you confess to murder to a police officer, I feel like it shouldn't matter if it's recorded or not. But I guess this was an issue for them at the time and they couldn't charge him at this point. I don't know. So fast forward now to January 1998, and Elwood returns to New Orleans, and while there, he was stopped by a traffic officer for speeding. When he failed to appear in court as scheduled for this ticket, Elwood was held in contempt of court, and a warrant was finally issued for his arrest, though not for anything to do with the murders. Elwood was apprehended and convicted of the contempt charge and was ordered to spend 120 days in county jail, during which he was formally charged with the murders of Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack. Now, I'm not sure what changed here since the confession that wasn't caught on tape didn't seem to be enough to charge him earlier, but for whatever reason, police felt at this time that they did have enough to charge him now. And I also want to be clear here, he is only being charged with the two killings connected to the Storyville Slayer, Lewis and Mac, nothing else, no other victims, just those two. So Elwood's trial began on June 8, 1999 in Lafayette, Louisiana. During the proceedings, a number of Elwood's former cellmates and sex workers he had hired testified, with the former saying that he had confessed to the killings in prison, while the latter said that he had assaulted them. One of the sex workers told the court that she had known Elwood since the early 1990s and had dated him periodically. 
She testified that in 1992, Elwood, while under the influence of drugs, assaulted Beat and strangled her into unconsciousness. She finished the story stating that she woke up in a pool of blood in an unfamiliar wooded area where a passing motorist found her by chance and sheltered her at the motel he was staying at. She said that she did not report the incident due to her being a sex worker with a criminal record. Another former sex worker and exotic dancer testified that she had also been beaten and assaulted twice by Elwood while he was on drugs, during which times he had also attempted to strangle her. And this was just the beginning. Three other former sex workers and drug users testified against Elwood, recounting similar stories of drug-induced violence. So that kind of set up Elwood's character, but as far as the murders, we had three witnesses testify that they had seen the defendant with Cheryl Lewis shortly before she vanished. According to the testimony of Lewis's best friend, she had seen her with Elwood three days prior, who was out driving his cab. The second witness, Lewis's neighbor, testified to seeing her at a restaurant two weeks before she was reported missing, standing between two parked cars and talking to a cab driver, whom she identified as Elwood. Lewis's cousin stated that she last saw Lewis at a hotel with a man who she identified as Elwood. According to her, Lewis said that she and Elwood were on their way to a suburb of New Orleans, the same one where her body was later found. Elwood himself denied knowing any of the Storyville Slayer victims or committing any murders, although he could not provide an alibi for either Mac or Lewis's murder. His attorneys argued that Elwood was not in New Orleans at the time of either of the murders, saying he was in Ohio with some relatives. Now, Elwood was actually known for keeping extensive amounts of documents to indicate his whereabouts, but conveniently, the receipts regarding his supposed presence in Ohio during the time of the murders had mysteriously disappeared. Because of this, Elwood's attorneys then filed a motion for a polygraph test to be performed on Sue Rushing, the then head of the Elwood Task Force, which was granted. During the test, Rushing was unable to answer a series of questions regarding the missing receipts, and the results were inconclusive, casting doubt on Elwood's guilt. Ultimately, the murder charge for Dolores Mack was dropped due to insufficient evidence, but on the basis of what I consider to be quite circumstantial evidence and rather unreliable testimony, Elwood was found guilty of killing Cheryl Lewis and was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole in August of 1999. Elwood has never been officially connected to, questioned about, or charged with any of the other Storyville Slayer murders. So with that said, there's not really much to go off of for the rest of this case. Police have been very tight-lipped about any possible forensic evidence at any of the crime scenes, save the one of Robinson and Iverster, where there was a piece of chewing tobacco near the scene, and that was what had the inconclusive DNA match to Victor Gant. But this case has really got my wheels turning, and I have multiple ideas of who this predator is. So with that, here are my top theories as to who the Storyville Slayer could have been and why the killings seemed to randomly stop in 1995. Now, I've got to throw my theory disclaimer in here as usual, so remember, y'all, these are just theories, not fact in any way. Let's jump in. My first theory is that Victor Gant was the Storyville Slayer. Gant was a native of New Orleans, specifically Algiers, which is where many of the victims were either picked up from or found. 
After becoming a police officer in 1980, he spent a lot of time in red light districts. And in the case that any of our listeners are unfamiliar with the term, it basically means an area of a city where sex workers would often solicit. Because of his work here, Gant was actually acquainted with a lot of sex workers, pimps, and street informants. He gained a reputation in the 1990s as a corrupt officer after many informants reported that he, along with a few other officers, were running a racketeering ring against pimps and sex workers, as well as other criminals on the street. None of these accusations were ever officially confirmed, though. It was around this time that he and Robinson began dating, which led her to report him for domestic violence in December of 1994. The motive police see, at least for Robinson's murder, is Gant trying to save himself from being fired at his disciplinary hearing in the spring of 1995. According to multiple friends of the two, Gant had some kind of personal grudge against Iverster and constantly talked negatively about her, making it plausible that she was just killed along with her friend purely because she was there and Gant didn't like her. No charges have ever been filed against Gant for these two killings due to the inconclusive DNA results, nor has he been named a suspect in any of the other murders for that matter. But he remains a possibility in my mind for a few reasons. First, he has a history of violence against women. See the two accusations of violence from his two ex-girlfriends. Second, being in law enforcement, he would have been clued into the investigation and what police had, contributing to him evading capture. Third, he looked so much like the police sketch of that black male victim number one described. And finally, the killing stopped as soon as he was questioned by the FBI. Like, he was questioned on May 4th, and then the final victim was found on May 6th. It was that close together. Now, do I think these four things add up to a nail in the coffin for Gant? No, I don't. Even with those things being true, it doesn't mean he killed 27 people, but it isn't out of the realm of possibility either. And regardless of his guilt in the other 25 murders, I am personally convinced that he killed Karen Iverster and Sharon Robinson. The DNA they had from the scene of that crime was saliva from a piece of chewing tobacco near their bodies, which I think just makes it less of a smoking gun than if DNA was found physically on them. And I just can't get past the fact that Robinson was supposed to testify literal weeks later in this disciplinary hearing. That's just too much of a coincidence for me. And he was a police officer in the midst of a manhunt for a serial killer. He had access to all the information about how those victims died, what kind of places their bodies were being found, all of it. It would have been easy for him to kill Robinson and Ivester and try to cover it up by making it look like it was a storyville slayer. It's totally in the realm of possibility for me. And if that's what happened, it unfortunately worked since Gant has never been charged with either murder. So the next possibility is that Russell Elwood was the Storyville Slayer. Now, he was obviously convicted for one of the killings, that of Cheryl Lewis, and was once upon a time charged with Dolores Mack's death too. But I just want to clarify again, he's never been charged with any of the other Storyville Slayer murders beyond those two. And I go back and forth on the possibility of it being him for a few reasons. First, it was made very clear during his trial that drug use made Elwood extremely violent, which could explain how and why he was able to kill so many people if he was the Storyville Slayer. 
And he also, by his own admission, spent a lot of time with Black sex workers, which were the majority demographic of the Storyville Slayer victims. Multiple of these women even came forward to say that Elwood tried to strangle them or was violent toward them during his trial, like I recounted. He also moved in 1995 to Florida, which is when the killing suddenly stopped. Altogether, none of this looks good for him. But what stops me from saying, yep, that's it, he's the guy, lies in two places. The first is the Howard Stern call. Elwood was already in police custody on August 13th, 1997, when that call was placed because he was in for that drug conviction in Florida. This means that if he made the call, he would have been doing it from a county jail. And so the call would have been recorded because that's just standard procedure. Also, when someone calls you from a prison in the U.S., the call usually begins with something like, this is a call from blank jail and asking if you accept the charges. Stern's staff who answered the call didn't hear that message. So clearly the call was not from an inmate because it came from a phone outside of jail. Plus, no known recording exists beyond that one Stern had from his show. So altogether, Elwood could not have made this call. The second area that gives me pause is forensics. Elwood was never connected through any forensic that we know of to Lewis, Mac, or any other victim, which honestly surprised me when I researched his trial. Like, he was convicted for Lewis's murder purely on circumstantial evidence, and that was the reason that the murder charge for Mac was dropped. There wasn't enough there for it to stick. And as we know from testimony, Elwood was violent when he was on drugs, and I have to believe that if someone commits 27 murders and a handful of other assaults in a drug-induced violent rage, some sort of forensic evidence tying that person to at least some of the crimes would remain. Fingerprints, DNA, something. I mean, if you're high out of your mind, you're definitely not worrying about forensics. Obviously, technology in the early 90s wasn't all that it is today, but police still would have saved any material found, and if so, why hasn't it been tested? We've got 27 crime scenes, and there's got to be something that they found that they could test. Either that or these murders were committed by a calculated, careful killer, not a drug-induced one, which brings me to my next theory. So another option here is that the Storyville Slayer was someone else entirely, a calculated, careful predator that has flown under the radar to this day. I'm not convinced that either Elwood or Gant were responsible for all 28 known victims, and it's possible that there was someone else out there who committed the bulk of these killings. I'm still convinced that the murders of Robinson and Ivester were committed by Gant, and the murders of Mac and Lewis still could have been committed by Elwood, but maybe the other killings were at the hands of an unidentified third killer. It's even possible that the murders of Robinson, Mac, Ivester, and Lewis were mistakenly attributed to this unidentified killer when, in fact, they were just one-offs at the hands of Gant and Elwood. Now, of course, Gant and Elwood could be completely innocent. There is still doubt in both of their cases, but at least after my own research, like I said, I'm pretty convinced Gant was responsible for Robinson and Ivester's deaths. Elwood was at least responsible for Lewis's. The court of law proved that. So let's just think hypothetically here. If this is the case, this mysterious third person may have been the man who called into the Howard Stern show in 1997. He also may have died, moved locations, or been incarcerated on completely unrelated charges in 1995 when the killings suddenly stopped. 
There's just a lot of possibilities here when we introduce an unidentified third person into the realm of possibility. So that being said, the final theory I have to pose today is that the murders were committed by multiple people, and since the manner of death in many of the cases was the same, they were mistakenly connected as being from one killer. Now, this theory could go in a number of ways. Two or three serial killers operating in the area at the same time, one serial killer plus a handful of one-off killings that were mistakenly connected to the other murders, or maybe a team of killers working together. There's a lot of avenues to look down. The thought is morbid, but it's a theory that the police have pretty much accepted as the most likely version of events. Whether Gant and Elwood were both serial killers with the same MO, or there were other serial killers in the area operating. This goes back to the idea of it being someone else entirely, and maybe some one-off murders in the mix that happen to look like the ones being committed by any potential serial killers, i.e. my theory about how Gant got away with Robinson and Ivester's killings. This also makes sense with the two descriptions we have available for the men seen with victims by eyewitnesses, the muscular black man and then the white man. Also, if this was the case, it would fit in with the Howard Stern Show call since the man that called said he had killed around 12 women when by 1997, the number attributed to the Storyville Slayer was 27 plus one assault. This would also make sense because Russell Alwood would not have been able to make the call because he was incarcerated, like I said, and this theory still leaves room for someone else who was available to make the call to be killing while Elwood was also operating. And while authorities are pretty sure that this call was from somebody who was the Storyville Slayer or responsible for at least some of those murders, there is still the possibility that this call was a hoax or a prank. So as we wrap up, I do want to be clear that I definitely think at least one serial killer is responsible for at least some of the murders. There's just no way that 28 victims initially connected to each other by police were actually all just one-off murders. But whether one or more serial killers were responsible, that has yet to be determined. And honestly, we may never know what truly happened under the cover of darkness in New Orleans between 1991 and 1995. So that concludes all my theories, but if you have any of your own after listening, I'd love to hear them. Head over to gracesonthecasepodcast.com to send me a message or shoot me an Instagram DM. My final thoughts here lie in DNA evidence. If there are other scenes that provided police with DNA from a possible killer, why hasn't any of it been tested? I tend to lean toward thinking that there must be something in many of the other cases due to some of the victims being sexually assaulted before being killed, and just the manner of strangulation, it's a very manual form of death. You have to be up close and personal to that victim to strangle someone. Technology has advanced so much since the 1990s, and with the new development of familial DNA, we could be closer than ever to having a conclusion as to who this monster was or at least definitive closure in some of the victims' cases, whether it was the same perpetrator for all of them or not. But until that happens, if it ever does, the identity of the Storyville Slayer or Slayers will remain a mystery. So thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed this episode. All of my source material will be listed on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com. It's also linked in the show notes, and you can contact me through there or Instagram DM at gracesonthecasepodcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases. I'll see you all next week for a new case. Music.